Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Scripture for today's sermon comes from Matthew 25, 14 through 30. The word of God speaks to us. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, You have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. If you're uh, looking for a new like punk rock band name, weeping and gnashing of teeth, that's an option for you. Um, hey, good to, good to be with you. My name's Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. Uh, if we've not had the chance to meet, I'd love to meet you after the service. It's good to, good to be with you today. Um, hey, a few things. So I'm so excited for 1 Corinthians next week. We have, our teaching team has been uh, preparing for that for quite a while now and doing some, some deep dives and some study and research. So we're really excited. That is a wild book. 
Uh, it's sort of like a Q&A with the Apostle Paul, and this church is wilding out in all the same ways that 2,000 years later, we are still wilding out in our culture today. So there's going to be some really, really helpful, practical things that we get into in that book that I think are going to really shape us as a people. So that's next week, but I want to fill you in on why we're doing what we're doing today. So we're in between series. Last week, we wrapped up our series called uh, Rhythms of Grace, and that's where we were looking at these ancient practices things that Christians have always done to form themselves as followers of Jesus. And then next week, 1 Corinthians, but today what we want to do is press pause and study this idea of stewardship in Matthew 25. Here's why. One of the things that is, uh, is becoming more and more apparent to us as elders is that the reality in our world is culture forms us left and right in ways that you often don't know. It's like a hidden force. It's like water that you swim in, uh, air that you breathe in, that you don't even realize the ways that the world is shaping and forming us. We tend to think of spiritual formation as only a Christian concept, something that happens in church. But the reality is spiritual formation happens every single day of your life. It happens 24-7. It happens when you watch shows. It happens when you go to the store. It happens when you see an ad on social media, it happens left and right in our world, your loves are being shaped. They're being formed. And we might even argue, and we would argue, that our loves as a people in the West are being malformed or disordered, that we're not actually getting brought around to the good life as Jesus defines it, but what's held out to us is the good life as the world defines it And all the ways that you and I are getting shaped is often in a way that's incongruent with what it is to be a follower of Jesus. So imagine this weirdness that it is to be in Oklahoma where it's sort of Bible Belt meets secularization at the same time, where you have people that claim to be Christians, but often the way that they live, the way that they interact with the world is just like their next door neighbor who doesn't know Jesus at all. So what we've decided to do as a church after a lot of prayer and a lot of seeking God's heart and a lot of study and a lot of reading broadly, we have identified five, uh, five ways, and there's more I'm sure, but five big ways that you and I are being malformed or deformed. And instead of just rant, ranting and raving about all those ways that we're being deformed, what we wanted to do is actually figure out what are the five ways that Jesus wants to counterform us as his unique people in the world. So let me give you these five things and kind of walk you through where we're headed. So the first area where we're being deformed is the autonomous self. And we spent time as a church this last spring digging into uh, the answer to that, which is the safety and beauty of authority. That actually, when we get brought into authority in Jesus, there's something safe about that. That being with Jesus, underneath Jesus, where he restricts us and tells us no, actually helps us thrive as human beings. Amen? Maybe you're like, I don't know if I can say that yet. That's okay. But that's what we studied in the spring. We are kicking off our second counterformation module next week, and it's on stewardship. This is the answer to consumerism, that you and I live and breathe in this culture of consumerism. That's what we're talking about today, and the answer to that is stewardship. The third one that we're going to look at in 2023 in the spring is the loss of truth, and the, the way that Jesus wants to form us is in this idea of truth and love together. Then in the fall of next year, we're going to look at post-Christian sexual vision, and really the answer to that, which is the Christian sexual vision that we actually believe as Christians that Jesus's sexual ethic is good news, not bad. It's not oppressive. 
It's not mean. It's not him trying to rob us of joy. He knows how human beings work best, and he's actually handed us something beautiful. We're going to talk about that. And then the final one is identity in the modern world, and we're going to spend some time as a church leaning into identity and the living God. How do we come to understand ourselves and our unique identity as Christians? So I'm just saying that to say that starting next week, if you are not yet in a community group, uh, this is going to be a massive deal for us. We're going to spend basically the next... Uh, eight weeks for most of our community groups going through this deep dive, the study of stewardship. So our, our team has put together this beautiful uh, book that is really helpful. It has four different guides that you and your community groups are going to be working out of. And in addition to that, there's going to be 40 days worth of daily liturgies. If you're just like, I, I don't know what to do when I wake up to seek God's heart. You know, we've been talking about seeking God and rhythms of grace. I don't know what to do. Well, our team has put together 40 days worth of daily liturgies that you can walk through, scriptures that you can read, prayers that you can pray, ways to confess and receive the assurance of the good news of, of Jesus. There's all these things that you can do. It's really, really helpful. So you can go to uh, Amazon and get these. We'll throw the slide up, but you can go to Amazon and get these books now. Uh, we're going to have a few copies available ne here next Sunday as well. This starts next Sunday. So here's my ask as one of your pastors. My ask is that if you are in a community group, you make this priority number one. This is number one with a bullet. We're going to basically pause everything else that we're doing and do a deep dive into this. If you're not yet in a community group, my ask for you is now's a great time to get involved. It's a great time to jump into a group, especially if you're new and you're like, oh, I don't want to be the new person. Well, you can be the new person in this context and it really won't feel weird or awkward. I think this is a helpful way for you to engage a new group. So that's coming up. We're going to talk about stewardship in just a minute, but I just wanted to, to offer this to you. This is a new rhythm for us as a church that we're building in because for us at Frontline, like we really don't care about being relevant as much as we care about being resilient in the gospel. That, that's, the, that's the fight that we're ha having right now. We're not trying to be cool, and obviously, like, even if we were, we'd be failing massively at trying to be cool, but we are trying to be resilient as followers of Jesus, and this is one of the ways that we can do it. Sound good? Okay, great. I'm excited for that. That kicks off next Sunday. Matthew 25. Let me pray for you, and let's jump in. Father, thank you for the gift that it is to gather with the church, to sing, to be reminded of our identity, to to be confronted and encouraged with your word. And today, God, we pray that you would feed us and that you would lead us and you would form us. And all the ways that we need it and all the ways that we're resistant and all the ways that we have questions, we pray, living God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would you meet us today? Would you comfort? Would you equip? Would you, would you it's weird to pray this, but Jesus, it's in your heart. Would you serve us today? Would you wash our feet as we sit before you? Would you give us everything that we need to follow you in this world? I pray for my own heart. I pray for my family. I pray for this church. Help us to steward what you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. C.S. Lewis once described life on earth as human beings similar to an armada of ships moving across the ocean. He said that there are actually three questions that every armada of ships needs to ask and answer if they're going to have a successful voyage. And those are the same exact three questions that you and I can ask as human beings if we're going to navigate our way through the complexities of this life. Here's the first question that C.S. Lewis said that we need to ask is, how do we keep from running into each other? 
Just like in our armada of ships passing in the ocean, how do we keep from running into each other? And this is the question of neighbor love and of social ethics. How do I live in such a way that's being concerned about you so that I don't harm you or hurt you or do something to, to damage you or run into you? This is a really important question. And this is actually a question that our culture tends to ask quite a lot, which is good. The second question, though, rarely ever gets asked, and, and C.S. Lewis said this is a very important question about how to navigate our way through this life. How do we not just keep from running into each other, but how do we keep from taking on water and sinking? How do we keep from taking on water and sinking? I mean, you can have all the social ethics in the world that are really helpful, but if you don't know how to navigate your own life in a mature way as a human being, then you can take on water and sink. So this is the question of personal ethics, of character, of cultivating virtues and avoiding vices. And this is a thing that our culture doesn't talk about because the only thing we think of is, well, if I'm not hurting you, then I can do whatever I want. But that may be true while you're sinking to the bottom of the ocean, right? So how do we keep from taking on water and sinking? It's a really important question. Here's the third question that is absolutely fascinating to me. What is the destination or the purpose of the armada? Where are we headed? Where's the goal? Like you might set out for uh, the shores of Australia, but if you don't actually know that you're heading for Australia, you might wind up in China and not know it. Like how do you know where you're headed and why does this armada exist? What's the purpose? What's the end? What is, to use an ancient word, what is the telos? What is the ultimate end for which you and I are living? And I used to say that that third question never got asked by our culture. In fact, uh, Peter Kreeft, a, a Catholic philosopher, said that we're the only generation that has not provided the generation behind us with a beautiful answer to that question. And I used to say that that's true. We've never had an answer to the question of why am I here? Why do I exist? Our culture doesn't give us that. And yet I no longer believe that that's true. I actually think that we do have an answer in the West, whether you realize it or not, but the answer that you and I have been given in the West for why do you exist is this. I exist to consume my way to the good life. I exist to buy things and purchase things and adjust my life in a certain way and make certain decisions and certain choices so that my vision, my Polaroid, my heart's desire of what I think the good life is all about, I can achieve that through consumption. This is the answer that you and I have given. It's interesting because behind every decision, every choice, every thought, every act is often at its core this consumption desire. Uh, there, there's a, there's a, an economist in 1955, kind of a famous economist named Vic, Victor Labau, and he said this, urging companies to market with this consumeristic perspective in mind. He said, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into, look, a ritual, that we seek our spiritual satisfactions, our ego satisfactions in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-increasing rate. He wrote that in 1955. And now it's even more prophetic and timely in 2022. It is the air that you and I breathe. Maybe you don't believe this or realize this, or maybe you don't acknowledge this, but chances are that you and I both tend to make all of our decisions, career decisions, 
relationship decisions, uh, when to start a family or if we're going to start a family, even decisions on what church we're going to land at with a consumeristic worldview in mind. It is just an American fact that we see ourselves as consumers and the world and everything inside of the world is there for us to consume. Uh, this became really apparent to uh, the, uh, the Wyoming Bridgers Wilderness Area. In 1996, they put out the survey and they were basically saying like, help us improve, we wanna do a better job. And I just want you to notice the actual responses of people to the Wyoming Bridgers uh, Wilderness Area Association as they received these, these feedback forms. So this is actual feedback from people and just see if you can hear consumeristic perspective there. Uh, trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid building trails that go uphill. Trails need to be wider so people can walk holding hands. Too many bugs and leeches and spiders and spider's webs. Please spray wilderness area to get rid of these pests. Please pave the trails so that they can be plowed clear of snow in the winter. Chairlifts need to be in some places so we can get to wonderful views without having to hike to them. The coyote, I love this one. The coyotes made too much noise last night and kept me awake. Please eradicate these annoying animals. Like, who cares what this is going to do to the environment? Just kill them all, right? Uh, here's another one. A small, I don't know how true this is, but it's fascinating to me. A small deer came into my camp and stole my jar of pickles. Is there any way I can get reimbursed? Weird. Reflectors need to be placed on trees every 50 feet so people can hike at night with flashlights. Escalators would be good on steep uphill sections. A McDonald's would be nice at a trailhead. The places where trails, I love this one, the places where trails do not exist are not well marked. Too many rocks in the mountains. And on and on and on I could go. But my point is this, like you, we, we go to a wilderness area in Wyoming and we're like, how can I consume this area for my own purposes? This is a silly example, but it's just the culture that we live in. Uh, now, maybe you don't think of yourself this way, but if consumerism is the umbrella, if that's like the big perspective, then there are two different identities that you and I often take on as consumers. The first is we see ourselves as owners. An owner says something like this, what I have belongs to me alone, and I can use it how I see fit. An owner doesn't have a boss or a direct report or somebody to be accountable to because it's, you own the stuff, so you can use the stuff the way you want to use the stuff, because it's your stuff. So an owner is going to say something like, well, it's my body. It's my time. It's my career, my home, my sexuality, my relationships, my gifts, my unique abilities, my money, my stuff. That's the way an owner tends to view their whole life. The other identity that we often take on is not an owner, but a renter. A renter is interesting because like, have you ever rented a car? I don't know if you're like this and I'm outing myself here, but when I rent a car, I always floor it right out of wherever I'm, I don't know why. Why? I do know why. Because it's not my car. Do you guys do that? You're just like, oh, I'm, this is a rental. You know, and you, you're like, who cares how I'm destroying the engine right now because this does not belong to me. And that's what a renter says. A renter says, well, what I'm using doesn't belong to me anyway, so it doesn't matter how I take care of it. I mean, it's just a body. It's just sex. It's just money. It's just a career. It's just stuff. It's just whatever. And we view ourselves in kind of a flippant, care, careless way like, oh, the world's going to burn up anyway. It doesn't really matter. YOLO. Let's just kind of enjoy this world as we have it because we're just renters. Owners and renters, that is like the primary paradigm with which you and I 
tend to view ourselves in the world. And Jesus in Matthew 25 is going to add a very, very different paradigm to us. He is going to offer something that isn't owner or renter as consumers, but something that's very, very different. Now, before we dig in and actually go verse by verse through this, just a, a brief context here on Matthew 25. The parable that we're looking at is smashed between two other parables. It's the middle, middle parable, and there's three in Matthew 25. And this is a section of scripture where Jesus is talking about life in the kingdom of God. He's specifically talking about the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus and how we navigate the complexity of living between those two comings of Jesus. So he's saying this. He's saying the first coming of Jesus, that's Jesus calling us to a life of discipleship. That's him inviting us to himself. That's him calling busted up, broken people like you and I, and just out of sheer grace saying, hey, come be with me, right? But the second coming of Jesus is about accounting. It's about, hey, here's, here's what I'm going to come do. I, give an, I want you to give an account for the life that I gave you. How did you live? So if the first coming of Jesus is all about grace, the second coming of Jesus is primarily about judgment and accounting. And what Jesus is helping us with is how do you and I live who are we and how do we live in this world between his first coming and his second coming? That's the parable in Matthew 25. So with that in mind, let's work our way through and I just wanna make a few observations along the way. Chapter 25, verse 14. For it, life in the kingdom of God, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Here's the first thing that I want you to see. God is our master and we are his stewards. God is our master and we are his stewards. It's interesting that the word that's used here of this man again and again after verse 14 is master, the master, the master. Now this is interesting because what this means is that the, the parable is essentially setting up this dynamic where there's a man who is a master who has servants and has property and has an estate and he goes on a journey, but before he leaves, he entrusts all that he has, his entire estate, to his servants. And, and this is the, the idea that Jesus is pulling on, saying, I'm leaving earth, but I'm going to return and I'm entrusting all things into your hands as my servants. And historically, this was not an uncommon thing for somebody to do. Stewards were known in the ancient world to basically operate all of the master's estate on his behalf, making decisions and doing things and executing exactly what the master would want executed that would line up with his heart and his intentions for his estate. This was a very common thing. They were actually responsible to run things while he was away. And then when he would return, you better believe that they would be giving an account for how they handled his estate while he was gone. Jesus takes that exact idea from the ancient world and he applies it to you and I as followers of Jesus. Friends, here's the paradigm shift that Jesus wants to give us, that you and I are not owners and we're not renters. We don't have the final say over all that we have, but you and I have a master and we are his servants. That actually all that we have has been entrusted to us by him and it's not mine. It's not yours, it belongs to him. And there is coming in a day where he will return and we will actually have to explain what we did with the one life that he gave us. 
This is what it means to be a steward. And I just want to pause and say, I can't think of a more culturally offensive thing to say about us right now. That you're not the master of your own fate. That you don't get the final say. That it's not your life. It's not your body. It's not your sexuality. It's not your money. It's not your stuff. It's not your dreams or desires. That you, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a servant with a master. That is like a, a, a huge turnoff to anybody who isn't a follower of Jesus because we've come to identify freedom as the removal of all authority structures, the removal of all restraints and all uh, anything that would tell me no. So if I'm gonna have a life of thriving and freedom and flourishing, I have to be the master of my own fate. But if you know anything about the story of scripture, you know that that's a failed story, that it doesn't work. The first pages of scripture actually tell us that Adam and Eve were created by God to be image bearers. Image bearer is another way to describe being a steward. What God did in creating image bearers was basically say, I could run the world all by myself, but I'm not. I'm gonna create the world and I'm gonna create you to run the world as my steward, to image me in your life and your decisions and how you handle things. And this is fascinating. I love this passage. I don't know if you've ever studied this, but David says something in Psalm chapter eight that is beautiful about the power and the dignity and the responsibility of being a human being. Here's what he says. He says, when I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? Have you ever stood in front of a mountain or at the Grand Canyon and thought, what is a human being that God remembers us? A son of man that you look after him. Verse five, you made him, listen to this, a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler of the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as all the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. Look at me. If you're human, you matter. You're not a child. You're, like God is treating you as adults, saying, I made you a little less than God. And everything that you have, you're running everything underneath me. Like you have the whole world as a gift to steward. And yet, sadly, here's the first lie that Adam and Eve heard is that God was holding out on them. That actually he is a stingy master that doesn't want to give them anything worth having. And if they are going to really experience true freedom in the world, they've got to transgress their ultimate identity as image bearers and, and servants and stewards, and they need to become the master. Just kill him so that you can be the master. And that's what Adam and Eve do. And when they make that decision, instead of finding thriving and flourishing and beauty and goodness and truth, what happens? Death dysfunction. The world is distorted. Everything begins to fall apart. And the reason why is because you and I make terrible masters. Like when you and I try to be the ultimate say over our lives, everything falls apart. It's like, it's like handing your whole world and your life and your home to your three-year-old. You will come back and you will not have a house. You, you will not have anything because if your three-year-old was by, by themselves, they would burn all things to the ground, right? Anyone with three-year-olds want to amen that at any point? They are horrible people, aren't they? I love them to death, but just horrible beings. They will kill everything. And that's you and I when we try to control the world. And yet here's the story of scripture. Jesus, our master, comes to the world as a servant. 
And instead of transgressing, instead of doing, he actually lives perfectly on our behalf. He goes to a cross and lays his life down as our servant so that you and I could get freed from slavery and become sons and daughters again so that you and I could become stewards again so that we could be forgiven by God and then handed all things again to steward well for his glory and for the good of this world. That's the story of scripture. And that leads me to the second thing I want you to see, which is our master is actually profoundly generous. Look at verse 14 again. I'm sorry, look at verse 15. To one, he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. Now, what is a talent? Well, we know what the word talent means in our culture today, but what does the actual word talent mean? Well, and it's a Greek word, and the Greek word for talent is the highest Basically, it's like a, the, high, the greatest unit of accounting in Greek money that existed. So if you're trying to like describe the greatest amount of money that, that Greek culture had, talent was that. And it was equal uh, to about 10,000 denarii. One denarii equaled about one day's wage. So think about this. Uh, one talent is about 10,000 daily wages added all together. Now, here's what's crazy. If you do the math on this, and this was hard for me because I'm a pastor, and that's why I got into pastoring part, partly was so I wouldn't have to do math. So I spent like way too long trying to calculate how much is this in modern culture today. It's around $1,477,228 today. One talent is almost $1.5 million. So think about this. Even the guy who gets one talent, you're like, oh, poor guy, he only got one talent. He got $1.5 million. That is a lot of money that he was responsible for before the master. Our master is profoundly generous. One guy got two talents. One guy got five. This is unbelievable. I mean, the master in this parable is profoundly generous because he's giving away his entire estate. He's saying, here, I'm entrusting all that I have to you. And here's why, is because the master in this story is pointing us to our master who is profoundly generous. Have you ever just pondered all of the various things that God has freely given us. Andrew Wilson says this in his incredible book, Spirit and Sacrament. He says, God, gave, God gives human beings dominion over all creation. Mountain ranges and waterfalls, deserts, jungles, leopards, glaciers, sequoias, oranges, peacocks. He gives rain. Praise God, we got some of that today. He gives light. He gives, a, he gives fragrances and flavors, even though, as a spiritual being himself, he has neither a nose nor a tongue. He gives colors. Most of us, I suspect, have never considered the theological, the theological implications of the existence of purple. He covers the earth with food-giving plants or life-giving water. And the places where he doesn't, the very rocks cry out. He creates orgasms and oxygen. None of these things are needed by God or deserved by his creatures, but he gives them anyway. Creation is charis or grace. The point, friends, is that our master is, yeah, he's a master, but he's irrepressibly generous. He just can't help himself. He wants to give all things away to his people. And here's why that matters. Because if you have a view of the master that he's stingy, 
or he's holding out, or he's, he's, he, he's, he's not you know, eager to give you stuff, then it will have a dramatic effect on how you engage all of the stuff in your life that you have. If you view him as stingy and restrictive and creating a world of no's, then it's gonna dramatically change the way that you view life. In fact, he is generous, and the only no is a no to sin and Satan and death. But he created us a world of yeses. This changes the way that we see how we use the stuff that he's given us to steward. That leads me to the third thing I want you to see, which is all of life as a result is a sacred trust. All of life is a sacred trust. So it's true that that Greek word for talent meant money, so the parable is primarily about him giving them an amount of money, but the parable means so much more than money. And we know this from the context, not just of the parable itself, but of the two parables that come before and after this parable. The idea here is that over time, this Greek word for talent started to come to mean all that you possess as a person, all that you have. And this is why, like literally, if you've ever wondered the origin, which I don't know why you would wonder this, but if you've ever wondered where the origin of our word talent in English comes from, it comes from this Greek word. It, it, we got our idea of uh, someone's aptitude or the unique ability or gifting, meaning talent, from this parable, that we actually have something that's been given to us from birth that is unique to us, and that's a talent. So what does a talent mean for us? What does a talent actually refer to? Well, it can refer to anything like natural gifting or unique ability or opportunities or what you do with the one life that you've been given or your money or your possessions or your job or your life stage. A talent can refer to your gender. A talent can refer to your sexuality. It can refer to your relationship or your marriage or your singleness or your time or Anything that you possess, that's what a talent can refer to. Frederick Bruner says it this way, whatever a talent is, it is whatever the Lord gives now and will ask about later. That's what a talent is. And here's my point, friends, that what God has entrusted to you, all of it, is a sacred trust. And I just want you to wrestle with this as a Christian. If you're not a Christian, this is like a Christian theology of how we view not just money, but possessions and stuff and who we are and our bodies and all of life. How deep, how far-reaching does the claim of Jesus go on our lives? How deep? Is it just our heart? Is it just our mind? Or does the claim of Jesus go all the way down from head to toe, even what you do with your, your gender, even what you do with your sexuality? Jesus owns it all. There is no such thing as compartmented spirituality where I can have a heart for Jesus and a body that's mine. Or I can have a heart for Jesus and then use my time in a way that's dishonoring. Or heart for Jesus, but then you know, take my possessions and treat them the way that I want to treat. It doesn't work that way. Abraham Kuyper said it this way famously, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And part of the core of discipleship is to let Jesus have what is his more and more every day and every year. Amen. It's saying, Jesus, it's not mine. It's yours. Every Sunday when we gather to confess and repent and receive assurance, we are essentially saying, Jesus, it's not mine. It's yours. It's your body. It's your money. It's your stuff. It's your house. It's your car. It's your life. You purchased it. It's not mine. You're sovereign over all, and you cry mine over every square inch. 
all of life becomes a sacred trust. And that leads me to the fourth thing I want you to see, which is this. Very soberly, we will all give an account. We will give an account for what he has entrusted to us. Look at the rest of the story in verse 16. He who had received the five talents went at once, I love the urgency, and traded with them and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, I love that it says it that way, don't you? After a long time. Some of you are like, I don't know if Jesus is ever coming back. After a long time, right? It's there for a reason. The master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So you know the story. The first servant and the second servant immediately take what was entrusted to them and they get to work. This is godly ambition. This is like, how do I use the the one life that God has given me and put it to work for his purposes in the world? They get to work. But the third servant, the third servant did nothing. He dug a hole in the ground, stuffed the money there because of his bad, distorted view of who the master really was. And after a long time, the master shows up and says, let's hear what you did. Let me settle accounts. Friends, there's coming a day where Jesus will return and he will look all of us in the eye and say, what did you do with the body that I gave you? What did you do with the sexuality that I gave you? What did you do with the gender that I gave you? What did you do with the money I gave you? What did you do with the time and the relationships and the career and the talent and the stuff? What did you do with it? And you will give an account. I will give an account for all of those things. Yes, grace comes first. He gives us talent. He gives us stuff freely that we don't deserve. He calls us to a life of discipleship, though we don't deserve it. But then judgment comes too. Responsibility comes too. Settling of accounts comes too. And there is coming a day where we will settle accounts with our master. Are we living for that day? And that leads me to the fifth and final thing that I want you to see and then we'll be done. Faithfulness not gifting or quantity is what counts. Faithfulness, not gifting or quantity is what counts. Look at the rest of the parable, verse 20. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more and saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. Notice the joyful response. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also had the two talents came forward and saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also had received the one talent came forward and saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. That, that, by the way, is an echo back to Genesis chapter three. I was afraid and I hid, right? That's what this guy's doing here. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. I don't know if you can hear it in the tone of this text, but the master's shocked at this servant's vision of who he is as a master. He's saying, you think I'm a hard man? You think I'm an evil? Like, you think I'm, you think I'm gonna demand more of you than, 
No, if, that, if that's truly your perspective, notice what he goes on to say, then you ought, you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in the place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, real quickly, just something I want you to notice here. Did you notice the master's response to the first servant with five talents and the second servant with two talents? I'm sorry, yeah, two talents. Did you notice the master's response? Word for word, the exact same response. What does that tell you? That he actually doesn't really care about the amount that you were given or he's not impressed with like what you end up, oh, you produced double, that's... The point is this, friends, that these guys were just simply faithful with whatever God had given them or whatever their master had given them. The point here is not that God on judgment day is gonna judge you if you didn't do everything that fill in the blank did or if you didn't have an impact on the kingdom like Mother Teresa or if you didn't you know, write a book or whatever. He's not gonna give, you're not gonna give an account for any of those things. You have what you have as a gift and you will actually answer for what you have. The point is that he cares about the faithfulness, not about the quantity, not about the fruitfulness even. He cares about the faithfulness. The problem with the third servant wasn't that he was only given one talent. The problem with the third servant was that he had a distorted view of his master. And because he had a distorted view of his master, he was totally faithless with the master's stuff. That's the problem here. So yes, there is a day of accounting. But faithfulness is the only factor here. What are you gonna do with the one life that God has given you? All right, so let's close. Where do we go from here? While I was putting the sermon together, I was praying for you and praying for our church and I just, I just sensed that the Lord was gonna have people in the room today that feel that they've been faithful, they've attempted to be faithful, but they feel wildly discouraged by what their life looks like right now. They feel like God has given them two talents or four talents or whatever, and they've worked hard. They've tried. They've actually like tried to be faithful, but things have not panned out the way that you would expect. Maybe you're here and you've done your best to steward your marriage, and it's falling apart or it has fallen apart. Maybe you're here today and you tried really hard to be a faithful parent, and you have a, a, a child who's wayward. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking about your singleness you're thinking about your sexuality and you're saying, man, Jesus, I'm trying so hard in our culture to be faithful to you and it feels like setback after setback. It feels like struggle after struggle. I don't know how to remain faithful because it feels like I'm not being very fruitful with all that you've given though I've tried. There's just a sense of failure that maybe you carry. And if that's you, I wanna close by just telling you a brief story about the Moravian missionary George Smith. When the Moravian missionary George Schmidt was 26 years old, he traveled to Cape Town, South Africa, and he made his way to what was known as the Valley of Baboons, and he built a little home there, and he planted a little pear tree in his garden, just a little shoot of a pear tree. And he began to befriend the local Khoi tribe. This was an aboriginal indigenous people of South Africa that was entirely, totally unreached. No person had attempted to give the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to this tribe ever in history. 
And he, taught, he, he began to, to teach them how to read. He taught them how to farm. He built relationships with them and friendships with them and helped them not go hungry. And, and he did this year after year after year, five years. It took him five years before he finally was able to baptize his very first convert. But when he baptized his first convert and then soon four other people uh, within that year, four other people, so five total, the, the, the local like approved church of South Africa found out that he had baptized an indigenous, uh, some indigenous people from the Khoi tribe and they were outraged. You don't baptize those people. They were seen as worthless. They were seen as people that had no value by the approved church of South Africa. And so they kicked him out of South Africa. You can't be here anymore. They, they removed him and he wasn't allowed back. After six years, he literally left and all, all that he left was five koi believers and a small little pear tree shoot. And it wasn't until 50 years later, 50 years, that the Moravians were able to return, but Schmidt had already died. So all he knows is that he was there, he did his best, six years later, he gets kicked out and then he dies. 50 years later, though, these Moravian missionaries arrive and they find the ruins of Schmidt's original house and in the garden, to their amazement, stood this giant pear tree. It's still there to this day if you wanted to go see it. But even more surprisingly than that, they met an old woman named Magdalena who introduced herself as one of the five original believers that Schmidt had baptized 50 years earlier. She was still alive and well and following Jesus. And in fact, her and the other four people had started a church there and had began to just thrive and flourish this local Koi church there. And she pulls out this uh, leather Bible. She hands it to her granddaughter and she says, hey, will you read for these Moravian missionaries? And the Moravian missionaries were shocked that five decades later, there's a second generation Christian reading from the Bible that George Schmidt had given this woman 50 years before. Friends, he lived and died thinking that he was a total failure, that he didn't do anything that had impact. He gave it his best but after six years, not much fruit to show for it. And some of you just need to hear this today, that when it feels like you have failed, your master is wildly pleased with you. Some of you need to hear this today, that what's awaiting for you on the great day is his voice over your life to look you in the eyes full of joy and delight and say these words, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's resist consumerism and let's be a people who fight to be faithful stewards of what God has given us. Would you stand with me? Our master became our servant. His body was broken, his blood was poured out so that we could be forgiven And so that we could know what faithfulness looks like and know how to steward the one life that he's given us. Jesus gave us his one life that he had. So we get to respond by actually being generous with all that he has given us. So today, I just want to invite you today, maybe you're here and the failure piece for you feels really relevant and really real. I want to invite you today to receive his faithfulness and know that all that you do in his name doesn't go unnoticed. It all matters, it all counts. In fact, all that you do in his name is all that matters and all that counts. And today, you can have hope that even when you give it your all, and even when you fail, 
He actually sees you and he is delighted in you today. Broken body and blood of Jesus is the truest, truest thing about you and your story. And today, our hope is that as we receive this sacrifice from Jesus, his body, his blood, that we're actually called into a life of stewardship with all that he's given us.